welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Um, and as usual with us on our, for our Tuesday podcast is our friend and producer, Hugo Lindgren. Hugo, how's it going? Hi, Bradley. How you doing? Uh, pretty good. Now, just to the listeners know, a couple of notes. One, we are recording this on Friday. What's today's date? January 21st. 21st, yeah. Um, because our editor, Jack, uh, is in a... Heavy metal band, and he's. Are they heavy metal? You told me this. I didn't know. Well, what I don't know if they're heavy they metal. They're very, they're very like. Ag- I don't. I don't think you call it heavy metal. But, it's like but, aggressive, loud but, rock. But and they're roll. the entertainment for a cruise. Well, I don't know if they're the only entertainment, but they're yeah, they're among the entertainment. So it's a heavy cruise. metal cruise. Okay, again, heavy metal. I'm not sure is accurate. Jack, okay. Jack is going to be listening to this, and and has everyone on the cruise already had COVID? Is that why they're not worried about it? You're asking me questions I don't know the answer to. Um, anyway, so we have to record earlier to fit Jack's schedule uh, because of the heavy metal cruise. But I do think <laughs> not heavy metal cruise, that we yes. might at some point want to have Jack on to talk about what is a heavy metal cruise. And who are the people that say, I really want to like listen to really thrashing music and I want to do it on a boat with buffets all day. Uh, you know, it's a generational thing. Bradley, it, you just can't understand the youth today. They have different interests than us. That's yeah. just the fact it's of it. So, so, all right, we're going to do a couple of things. One is we're going to talk about uh, what the U.S. Senate just did on antitrust, obviously a big issue for uh, this podcast. People listen to it. Second, Hugh and I have a conversation about linear versus nonlinear success. And then third is just a, a heads up. Um, next week, we're putting out a pretty robust memo about how to regulate the metaverse. And it'll be the topic of uh, probably a couple of firewalls going forward. So if you're interested in what the metaverse is and, and the issues it'll raise, uh, you should find that interesting. That'll, and that'll be published next week somewhere where where, where listeners could probably find it too, right? Um, where yeah. Would, where would they look for it? Just on, on the Tusk website? or Yeah, it'll, it'll be on our – you can find our website. Uh, we're going to put it on a site called Mirror. Okay. So that's, that'll be the place to get it. But, um, yeah, if, if, if you just go to BradleyTusk.com, we'll have it on there. Okay, great. Um, so this big antitrust bill last week was voted out of committee. Senate Judiciary Committee voted to bring it to the floor. It seeks to make it illegal for the largest Internet platforms to unfairly favor their own products and services over those of other businesses that use the platform. Right. Um, okay, so this is something we talked about a, a bunch. Uh, is, this, is this doomsday? No, is no, it, this is great. So, no, I know it's not doomsday for uh, – it's certainly not doomsday for you right. or me. But um, is this a nightmare for big tech? It's a problem for big tech. It is not as bad as Amazon being told, okay, now Amazon and, uh, you know, the marketplace and AWS have to be separate companies are telling Facebook that Facebook, Instagram and WhatsApp have to be separate companies. So it's it's not as structurally significant as that. But look, I think one of the ways that, you know, Apple, Amazon, Facebook all manage to limit competition is that they use their platforms to advantage themselves, which, by the way, until it becomes illegal, why wouldn't they? Right. So I I don't blame them for doing it. But take Amazon, for example. Let's say, Hugo, you're you're selling, uh, you know, I'm holding a piece of paper here that you guys can't see, but you're you're selling computer printer paper uh, for for five bucks. I'm I'm making this up. Um, Well, you were like in journalism. You're the last (laughs) of the Mohicans, man. And... um, (laughs) You know, Amazon says, "Okay, we'll undercut Hugo by twenty cents. We'll make it four eighty. Right. We'll put us. At the, we'll put Amazon at the very top of the search. Put Hugo at the very bottom. No one will even find him. Right. Um, and effectively, they win either way. If someone buys your paper, they make money on that transaction. If someone buys their paper, they make even more money in the transaction. Right. Or Apple can do that with in the, in the App Store. Or so could Google on Google Play. So that's what they're trying to prevent. Um, what's pretty significant is this was bipartisan. So it, it, unlike 
everything else happening in Washington, where everything is completely hyper-partisan and nothing can get done at all, in this case, 16 out of the 22 members of the Senate Judiciary Committee voted to support the bill. Uh, Chuck Grassley, who's the ranking member on the Republican side, voted to support the bill. And that's pretty significant. That happened in the House as well. And I think that when this hits the floor, there's pretty broad-based bipartisan support um, for reigning in big tech. And this you know, is an easy win for them for I think for so. So the question Washington. now becomes if if you are Amazon, Apple, Facebook at all, how do you stop it? Right. And I think they are you know, doing the traditional playbook, right? They're going to run ads. They've got a billion lobbyists out there. What's the ad that you run? Hey, we don't tell us like what products to sell. You, like, you would say no, no, no. You would make you have to make it about the consumers. You right, would say this is going to jeopardize consumers because we like I heard Feinstein, who was kind of parroting the you know the company's position because she's a California senator and she should, right? right yeah. You know, oh, if, if Apple can't regulate the app store better, then unsafe apps will come to the forefront. Right. So what they will say is this will this will make you more unsafe and cost you more money. Right. Um, and that's the argument they're going to make. But, you know, Pierre Omidyar, who is one of the founders of eBay, launched, uh, and Chris Hughes, who is one of the founders of Facebook. So you're jumping ahead. I have a question on that. Um, you're already answering right it. See, this I, is the problem with interviewing Bradley. You shouldn't have previewed it with me. So, <laughs> so um, they've launched a campaign. I don't know. They didn't say how much money it is. Tech oversight project. Yeah, but to basically a better name than that, run a counter campaign so that if Apple and Google and Facebook and Microsoft are putting up ads, in a state targeting a particular senator or house member, uh, they're putting up ads on the other side. If this grassroots right. going in one way, it's going in the other way. Now look, the companies have a lot more money than Pierre Omidyar and Chris Hughes do, um, but if they put- Who have in, a lot though. Who have a lot, yeah. yeah. But, if, if, but if they put in enough, that plus the natural desire of Congress to pass something around this issue, ought to be enough. So all you're trying to do is prevent it from for the, su the support from eroding to the point where you can't pass the bill. Okay. Um, and I think that they're, so they're playing defense, but I, I think that having them in there the is The Tech Oversight great. Project yeah. playing defense. Yeah. It's funny, They I, I like the in, in the in the story in the Washington Post about them, they refer to their campaign-style tactics, which is obviously it's a, great. a page I mean, from the Tusk playbook. By the way, this, there was yeah, one. this is the stuff that we've been saying for 12 years. And also, by the way, what we've been saying about crypto, which is until crypto starts to behave exactly like this, right? Until they start running real campaigns that involve ads and grassroots and earned media and social media and polling and contributions and lobbying, and all of that stuff, until they learn how to play the game, they're gonna have limited ability to influence and shape the regulatory climate for cryptocurrency and right. for the blockchain. Right. And yes, there's a lot of money in crypto now. Yes, uh, they have a lot of fans and supporters, but they've got to professionalize it from a political standpoint. And look, we're seeing that in, you know, for Tusk Strategies, our, our own work with different crypto companies, we're seeing kind of the light turning on with lots of them saying, oh, um, yeah, we need a political strategy, we need a regulatory strategy. And, and they're starting to get it, um, but that's what it's going to take. And look, by the way, when Google started, all they did was smile and say, don't be evil, and they didn't do anything else politically either, right? right and right. eventually they kind of learned their lessons, and uh, now, together, now, yeah. now they play the game. So this is kind of the, the path for everyone, but I think for crypto, because things are moving so fast in general, if they want to prevent uh, harmful regulations, you know, they've got to be relevant politically. Do you kind of understand why Pierre Omidyar and, and Chris Hughes not only are bankrolling this, but kind of want to be the face of it. Like, yeah, what? I th I think there's a little bit of 
they're angry. <laughs> I think I think that some of this is the right thing to do. I think right. Chris Hughes is probably like, shit, what did I wreak upon the world when I helped create Facebook, right? There's probably some like repentance involved. Really? I think so. Chris okay. is a very thoughtful guy. Okay. Uh, I, don't, I don't know Omid URL, but I know Chris a little bit. Um, and... Um, and some of it also is is absolution, right? If, if they're leading the campaign, you know, these are people who have made billions of dollars in technology, right. and if then they're leading the campaign against it, uh, it, it changes the narrative for them. It makes them sort of more acceptable to the left. Look, not unlike how, even though it's ironically he's one of the targets of this bill, but Jeff Bezos, by owning the Washington Post, really protected himself for, for a couple of years in the sense that because the Washington Post was seen as so anti-Trump, right. he got a free pass to a certain extent, or at least a much easier ride than he would have gotten otherwise, um, because he was able to change the narrative about himself to a cer- certain extent. Right, right? Right. And I think to, that my guess is well, Midiar and Hughes are doing the same thing. Um, a couple other questions on that. Uh, there was one interesting bit in the in the article about how they were not, the Tech Oversight Project was not interested in pursuing the repeal of Section 230. They said that that was a distraction and a red herring. Do you, do you agree with so, that? Well, I agree with the strategic choice, okay. which is you're trying to pass one bill. Any, literally, an act of Congress is synonymous with a miracle these days, right? <laughs> so, like, so don't screw around. So don't mess with it, right? right? If, right. if you have momentum, you have some bipartisan support, stay focused on that. So they're right from a campaign political standpoint. I would say substantively I, I disagree. Right. Um, it, it, to, to me – Half of the harm that you see on platforms like Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and TikTok are because the companies are completely immune to any sort of liability on what's posted on there. And therefore, not only are their standards relatively lax, but it is in their economic interest to have as much bad shit as possible put on their platforms because that's what drives clicks and eyeballs and engagement. That's how they make money. It also says in the article that that uh, Amazon spent approximately eighteen million on lobbying in twenty twenty. Facebook spent twenty million, which they describe as record breaking, whatever that means. Um, do those figures still, the figures no, scare a, us? It's a drop in the bucket. But but should they like? I, I don't even know how to like twenty million dollars for Facebook seems like like nothing. So it's nothing like, for Facebook. Then the quite but but is it back it up? So, okay. Well. So for 20 million bucks in a year, how many Washington lobbyists can you get, right? right? So let's say that a decent Washington lobbying firm is charging you 30 to $40,000 a month, assuming right. they're doing monthly retainers. So let's just be generous to, to the, the K Street guys and call it 40 grand a month, right? Okay. So that means that if you had 10, 10 lobbyists, it's 400 grand a month, mm-hmm. which would get you about 5 million. So under that theory, they've got like 40 lobbying firms on the payroll. That's a lot. Um, because keep in mind, uh, eventually every 40 member— 40 lobbying firms all putting their oar in the same water doing the same thing? So what? how you do it is everyone has a specialty. This one was so-and-so's chief of staff. This one was so-and-so's legislative director. So they're all coming at it from a little different They're coming angle. at it either from a specific, the angle of a specific person or this one you know, can help mobilize the left. This one can mobilize the libertarian. So everyone brings a slightly different angle to the ballgame. Right. Um, but, yeah, so so just based on the math, and by the way, I was being probably too generous. It's probably more like at least 50 lobbying firms. So if you think about it from that perspective, yeah, it's a lot. Wow. And those guys are just playing golf, taking people out to dinner, making phone calls. Yep. Like, that's it. Yep. Nothing Hol- else. Holding fundraisers. Holding fundraisers. So they got to raise more money for what? Because the members— Oh, they gotta, oh for the— uh, For course. the members. Duh, right. right. The members right. are—the only reason the members talk to the lobbyists is they rely on them for their fundraising. Right. Right. Thank you. And Thank so you for politics yeah. 101. 101. But yeah. it, it, it's helpful to me. I hope it's helpful to listeners because— um, 
I, it, it, it's, it feels so opaque to me, right? I see like $20 million, $20 million for Facebook. I'm like, what in the world? What is that? You know? Right. You just now the truth it, is, I appreciate a, it. a <laughs> campaign, if they really, really get serious about this, they could easily spend a couple hundred million dollars without blinking. I want to do one more thing from the article from the Washington Post because I did like the rebuttal from the guy who heads up one of the big tech lobbying groups. Yep. He said, the tech oversight project seems concerned with the needs of billionaire companies that are attacking trillionaire companies and not America's small businesses. Which I was like, oh, that's a great just it's, change it's, of subject, yeah, right? So now it's, it's a about great billionaires line, but it's total bullshit, right? So right. like your average, you know, let's say Hugo's printing paper business on Amazon <laughs> um, is a small business, right? And they're the ones that are being discriminated against by the anti-competitive practices of platforms like Amazon. A and, you know, yes, um, or is Pierre Omidyar and Chris Hughes wealthy people? Sure. And are some of the companies that weighed in, like Yelp, weighed in on behalf of the legislation, are they smaller than the mega platforms? Yeah, but at the end of the day, I've mentioned this on the podcast before, I have a very hard time pulling the trigger on an investment in anything that would really compete with Apple, Amazon, Google, Facebook, Microsoft, because their practice is so anti-competitive and they have so much money and power that it feels like a waste of money. When I invest in a company at the seed stage, it's almost by definition a small business, right? They right. are often pre-product, pre-revenue, they have you know 10 employees or whatever it is. Right. I know for a fact that some of them would do better and get more investment if the playing field were more level. Um, Okay, we're gonna we're gonna switch now to the sort of linear versus nonlinear uh, sort of career yeah. discussion. I do want to alert our listeners that I asked Bradley before we started recording whether he wanted to talk about Joe Biden, and you declined. I just, I just felt to like <laughs> taking shots at him for that press. Like, yes, did did was some of what he said sort of the Ukraine insane? Absolutely. Um, if you're Kamala Harris and you have to then be, he has to publicly say, "I still support her, and she will be on my ticket." That's fucking terrible for her because she's hoping to be the presumptive nominee in 24, not the presumptive VP nominee in 24. And they're already talking about removing her even from that useless job. So, <laughs> um, yeah, there were there were things that were notable, but I just feel like everything's been said about it. I, I was amused by Brett Stevens' column in The New York Times that suggested that of the four things that Biden must do to, you know, whatever, uh, to turn his fortunes around, that the fourth one was declare that he's not running. Uh, you know, in 2024. And I was like, yeah, that's like literally the last thing he's going to do. Literally the last thing. Oh, yeah, by the way, I'm not running in 2024. Yeah, I'm even more irrelevant. I'm even less <laughs> exactly. powerful. Which is like, I'm sorry, I don't think that's going to And then, a, by the way, if he did that, every Democrat who then wants to run, then if Biden continues to be unpopular, has to distance themselves from him, which is just going to make his agenda that much harder to implement. Ridiculous. Um, okay. Hey, actually, can I make one more point about this? Sorry. Of course. It's my your podcast. podcast. <laughs> so so I, I was, I was going to write a column about this, and then I was working on that regularly in the metaverse thing and kind of got distracted. But So Mike Mayock, um, as this podcast frequently returns to sports, for three years was the general manager of the Las Vegas Raiders, formerly the Oakland Raiders. Before that, his entire career, as far as I can know, was spent as a pundit. So he right. was on the NFL Network as a draft analyst and, you know, sounds very smart on TV, radio, podcasts, whatever it is. And is it Mike Davis? What's Al Davis's kid's name? Who owns oh, the I team? Don't even Mark, know. Mark, Mark, Mark Davis. Davis. Mark Davis, yeah. Mark Davis, I think, says, this guy sounds really smart. How does we he not have an Al Jr.? There must be an Al Jr. too, right? Yeah, I don't know. Gotta be. Yeah, you think. Um, is it, there's a Don about. Jr. that's gotta be an Al Jr. Um, so, but Mark Davis says... Oh, this guy sounds so smart. And if I hire him, all of his colleagues 
will be really nice to me and say how smart I am for hiring him because right. that makes them feel smart, right? And guess what happened to Mike Mayock? He got fired last week because he sucked at his job. <laughs> the team didn't do well. They had multiple scandals. He didn't know how to run an organization. And so the point being, when someone like Brett Stevens says, oh, Biden should do these four things, the first thing Biden should do is never read Brett Stevens. And by the way, he's one of the better columnists at the Times. <laughs> um, but, but the second thing is the pundits who have never done anything or run anything, they've never worked in government or or run campaigns from the political side. They never work sort of in the NFL or whatever it is if it's on the sports side um, and just sound smart. Um, they don't know what the fuck they're talking about. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Um, let's go to uh, career paths. Um, I'm going to start with a uh, with, with just a direct question because it's based you know on stuff that does in fact happen to you. Um, a young student comes UFOs. up to you. Uh, she's right out of college. She says, Bradley, I want a career like yours. What do I do right now? What do I start? How yeah. do I start? So, so because besides working for you, right? So, be, which is usually what they're asking for. But be, because <laughs> because my career was so weird in all of the different twists and turns that it has taken, I don't know that I could have plotted it this way, or anybody else could plot it similarly for themselves. Right? right. A lot of it is when you see opportunities, having the risk tolerance and work ethic to to go pursue them. Right. right. Um, but. Oftentimes, I think what people really need to almost figure out is know thyself, right? It's what Socrates or someone said that. And depending I think that's on. That's also like a fortune cookie thing, but maybe not. Um, I, I like the fortune cookie that says you really like Chinese food. Uh, <laughs> I, was, I was laughing, I get those. Um, I actually don't think they do them anymore. I haven't gotten a fortune cookie in years. Oh, really? Have you? Yeah, I think so. I think the last time we got Chinese food from Hong Dynasty, we got some fortune cookies. Did they? Yeah, yeah. we got them. I um, always, I always eat them. I mean, yeah, I, like, I feel like the fortune doesn't count if you don't eat the cookie. I knew a guy that would eat the fortune um, and throw away the cookie. I don't know if he ate the cookie or not. I think he ate both, but he ate but the fortune. Things didn't. That's ridiculous. Think his 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 career took a serious turn south. So, I'm not sure that you want to try that. Um, anyway, so so don't he, eat the fortune. That should fortune. be a fortune. Yeah, there you go. Don't eat this. Um, so anyway. <laughs> Knowing yourself is a question of if, if this is for people who are young, ambitious, really ambitious, really hardworking, and they're saying, okay, I really want to be successful. And then the question is, one, what's your definition of success, right? Because there is linear conventional success that most of the big academic institutions that are turning out, people out of top business schools, top law schools, all of that say, okay, great. You're going to go now into the Goldman Sachs, you know, analyst program. You're going to do two years there. Then you're going to get your MBA at Harvard. Then you're going right. to go back to Goldman. And, and there's a very, very linear ladder up. Law firms even more so. Places like McKinsey even more so. So that's one path. And if you say, I want to be really successful, but I don't want to have to invent the field that I'm going to succeed in. I want it all be there. As long as I work really hard and I'm really smart, I, need the ladder, I, need I can the get it. Right. Um, then that's what linear success is, and you should pursue that. Um, and if you know yourself well enough to know, like, hey, I don't love uncertainty, I need structure, I don't love risk, and all of that, then Goldman Sachs, McKinsey, Cravath, whatever you want, is probably the right place for you, right? However, um, nonlinear success. So I really sort of started thinking about this term from from Jordan, who who talks about it in terms of that's Jordan Knopf, your, Jordan your partner Noff, in the my fund. partner in the fund, in terms of the return the profile. Fund. Uh, of investments that we make in the sense that we're early stage investors and we're not looking for 
uh, you know, a, a 2x or a 3x on a deal. We're looking for at least a 10x on every deal. In other words, not nonlinear gains. So I started thinking about it, but less in the context of investments and more in the context of career, right? And in some ways, I confronted this a lot. So I went to law school in the mid-90s um, and was, I think, the only kid in my class that certainly didn't practice law coming out of uh, coming out of graduation, and probably one of the few that didn't go to work at a law firm. And I remember it wasn't just that I didn't want to do it. Like I so actively had to like resist against it because the entire system was designed to funnel, funnel you into you that. Right. And I had a lot of debt, right? You know, I had paid for law school with that, so it was like shit. I owe all this money, um, but I knew that in a kind of linear place, I would fail, right? I do well when either I'm in charge. Or it's totally unconventional, right? You put me in a big system, and I, I think I think whatever I'm good at becomes a lot less useful um, right away. And look, I did spend you know 18, 20 months at Lehman Brothers in 2007 and eight, and I did okay. And look, they let me create an entirely new thing there about privatizing state lotteries. So it, to a certain extent, still let me use my skill sets. But I was bored out of my fucking mind. Did you like mind. show up with a suit and tie every day? Like, yeah. really? Yeah, it was terrible. It's so weird. I can't even really picture I it. I did not like it. Um, you get your hair cut really short and everything? No, yeah. my hair was probably the same. But um, but anyway, so if you want nonlinear success, it is achievable. People who make billions of dollars or who— But wait, hold yeah. back up for a second because you didn't think like, oh, I want nonlinear success— you just thought like this is what I want to do, and then later, yeah, it, it, I, I don't think I understood it how to frame it. In fact, now. let's even back up for one second because your first job out of college was at the Parks Department. Was mm -hmm. that where you worked? Yeah. So, like, did you even for a second think like, wow, I might work here ten years, or did you know that that was like? No, I th I think I knew. Look, I was always very ambitious, and, and I have a short attention span, so I kind of get bored doing stuff, which is why you know I keep starting new businesses and entities <laughs> and all kinds of shit like that. So, um, no, I th I think I knew that I was not going to be a career civil servant. But you weren't thinking like, wow, I want to juggle all these different things. You just knew that you couldn't really. It almost came from a kind of like, I can't do it this way. I can't do it like... I yeah, can't it just, just seemed like death to me. Like, so fucking boring to right. just be at some big institution and work your way up the ladder. Like, to, to me, in fact, the reason why I loved working at the Parks Department was Henry Stern, who's now passed away, but was the commissioner, basically said to me, you, like, my job, I worked there before law school and after law school. Before law school, I was, I was their spokesperson. After law school, I came back with effectively no real responsibility other than Henry saying, just do, do you be you. You do you. You come up with stuff, right? And I came up with all these different initiatives um, that that the agency did. In fact, right. when I left, it was partly I felt like I sort of maxed them out, right? Like right. I had so many people <laughs> working on shit that was not the core function of the Parks Department. You couldn't do it anymore. It was like, yeah, time to leave. But um, – but yeah, I, I think I have understood myself well enough to know that. But but basically, think about it. I'm an outsider. I'm a kind of a, a weird guy. I'm frequently <laughs> an outcast. Um, I don't necessarily play well in the sandbox with others unless I'm in charge. Um, I'm hyper aggressive. Uh, I tend to think about things in a really unconventional way, and as a result, I think I would probably be a detriment to most sort of smooth, well-oiled machines because you don't want those people, right? You want someone who just sort of reads all the depositions and does all the, the right. research and whatever else it is. Okay, so let me ask you a question then. Like going to law school is the classic low-risk aversion, please your parents, yep. do the safe thing, like post-college so move. So, I went so to, why, why did that even occur right. to you? So two reasons. So I think it was probably 50-50 in terms of 50% was the 
please your parents, you know, that that kind of stuff. Right. And then 50% was um, when I was at the Parks Department, uh, I saw people who I admired in government who weren't practicing lawyers but all had gone to law school. And I felt like, oh, there's clearly something that they learn how to do or a way that they learn how to think that I don't know that seems to work pretty well for them. I'd like to get that. Now, the reason why I particularly picked the University of Chicago to law school is I knew I was never going to practice law. So I wanted a school that was, A, um, the hardest program I could find because like, I might as well learn as much as I possibly can if I'm not going to actually then use this thing, and B, um, a place that was sort of unconventional in the sense that it was it was kind of law and economics more so than it was sort of traditional law. Right. Um, but, but, you know, look, I do think it was useful, which is um, – I get asked all the time by young people, should I go to law school? My question, my answer is always, my question is, well, do you want to be a lawyer? And if you're asking me, the answer is always no. So they say no. And I say, look, it worked for me. I wouldn't recommend it, though, um, because it is three years and an incredible amount of money. But I will say this. All day in law school, you read these long, boring, dense cases, right? And what you have to find is what's called the holding of the case, which is like two sentences. Like, this is the thing that matters. So you're finding the needle on the haystack. But when you, like anything with pattern recognition, if you do it over and over and over again, you get pretty good at it. And while I've never had to do it in the capacity of legal research or anything like that, uh, I remember when I was deputy governor, it kind of hit me one day, like people would basically just kind of, my whole day was people would see me, they would tell me whatever the problem was, I would have a couple of minutes to ask a few questions, you know, listen to their answers, narrow it down and make a decision and go to the next person, right? And I think that that skill set, I very much developed um, in law school. With that said, you know, is it worth three years of your life? And God knows what it costs right now to go to law school. Just <laughs> about that skill set? No. You know. Right. Um, okay, this is, I'm, I'm going to go nonlinear on the interview. So, what aspect of entrepreneurship is hardest to learn or to teach to other people? I mean, I think there's certain things that are just instincts, right? So, like, take hiring for venture capital. It's very hard because it almost requires two separate stages, right? The first is, okay, on paper, in interviews, does this person seem like the right person? Do they have the right experience, everything else? Are they saying the right things? Then they get here, and then there's just this intangible thing. Either you can smell deals or you can't. Either you can sell or you can't. Either you can make shit happen or you can't. And frequently, um, you hire people who you th can hope can do that, and then it becomes pretty clear after a period of time, like a year or whatever it is, that they can, and you sort of politely, gently move them on. Um, but um, so I, I think that's what it is, is really it, it just for entrepreneurship, you have to have a, on top of the idea and the work ethic and the risk tolerance and everything else, there's just an X factor, right? And Which often, can't be learned or learned Can't be talk. learned. And oftentimes when, when Jordan and I and the team are looking at what to invest in, kind of what we're asked, because we invest so early stage, we're really making a founder bet. Right. And part of it is, does this person have the X factor, right? right. And sometimes the answer is yes, sometimes the answer is no. Um, but that's the hardest part because you, you can't, if you don't have it, you don't have it. Right. So in this sort of cultural moment, kind of edge of COVID, it's not obviously over. We're not in the worst of it. Um, the the kind of relationship of people to their jobs seems to have changed quite mm -hmm. a bit. Yeah. Obviously, a lot of people are quitting. We read about that endlessly. But there's also a kind of like authority crisis, it feels like, in workplaces. Like, it's not that people hate their boss, like maybe classically, like, like I feel like we 70s. Should as a quick, we showed the kids office space. Uh -huh. They loved it. They yeah. did? Yeah, it was fantastic. <laughs> That's a good idea. Um, 
So, so it's not the classic hate your boss. It's like they don't care about their boss. Feels like that's the well. Co- or let me give you the corollary here. So, I okay. like to think that our employees like me. Right. Um, I think our recruiting and retention rates would sort of back that up statistically. Right. And yet, you know, you and I are sitting in one of the glass conference rooms of our office, and I'm looking out into a sea of empty desks. Now, people are working. Every every one of those desks represents a human being who's doing work right now on right. one of my companies or projects or something, but. Um, this generation, kind of Gen Z or millennials, see work in a different way, right? To me, if I were 25 right now and I was in a situation, I'd be in the office even more. Could I tell you, okay, you know who's there? All the old people, the people in charge, right? <laughs> so Chris Coffey or Jordan or Julie's here on the bookstore, whatever it is, Michaela, Shelley, Megan, like the, the, the top people here, right, are here. And then if it were me, it'd be like, look, if I'm going to be here and be around them, so one, they see me working really hard, and two, this is how shit happens. You know, it's it's the random conversation when I'm on the way to the bathroom or to grab a a water from the fridge or whatever it is, where all of a sudden you learn about stuff, and that's how you start getting burned into other stuff. So I've always been surprised, because my people do work really hard, and they seem ambitious to me, but culturally speaking, they have a different attitude towards work. And by the way, Maybe a much healthier attitude towards work, right? I mean, my attitude towards work is so, is is really unhealthy, right? Which is so much of my own self worth and validation comes from professional success, and I'm constantly working because it was makes me feel good about myself. Right. So it, it may be really healthy that they, they work this way, but it's definitely a shift. So I have a lot more questions, but I'm only going to ask one more on the subject. I think we're going to come back to this just on other discussions because I think there's a lot more interesting stuff to talk about. But so I'm going to ask you one question, then I want to mention something about meatloaf, and then we'll be done. Okay. Um, just one thing about Milo. Just one. Um, as you get closer to 50, uh, it seems like you're doing more stuff than you've ever done. Do you sometimes think I should be doing less? Like, Well, I, th- I think, yeah. So I think about this a lot. And I would say there are days where I look at my schedule and it's like I'm being shot out of a cannon. Right. right, like you see me. Sometimes I guys. Well, you're not here. nice on days like that. I'm not. Or you're less nice. You're never. You're never actually unpleasant, but you're. You're just Kurt. in your own zone. Yeah. yeah. So you see me kind of run in here. Right. Do you the podcast fast. Like, yeah. Get out. Right. right. Um, whereas today it's a Friday. Yeah, I've, I've got stuff on the schedule, but it's not like so jammed that I'm. I'm anxious about it. Um, so there are days like that. Um, and but I would say more that because Bob and Megan and Mikhail, kind of the Shelley, the core crew. Marlo, we had a discussion about this maybe six weeks ago where I sent them an email saying, I will, I'm sure, in the next year, co- email you, you guys with 10 different ideas for new businesses we started, new causes we should take on, or whatever it is. I'm asking now to remind me of this email when I do that because we have a lot of stuff this year that we have to execute on. We've got to get our SPAC done. We've got to open our bookstore. We've got to launch Exalt on the App Store. You know, We're launching a new fund, all these different things. And so I think where I maybe run into trouble is the creative side of it, thinking of a new idea, putting the team together, putting the plan together, you know, all of that is really, it's hard, but it's really fun. Right. Kind of the day-to-day execution is typically less fun. So I think where I have to personally be mindful of is not to so prioritize new idea generation and the fun part um, ahead of execution. So that's where, you know, I try to be mindful of it. With that said, are there two or three new things that I'm thinking about right now that um, we probably will do simply because I'm excited (laughs) about them? Yeah, most likely. Um, All right, uh, last thing, different subject, nonlinear. Do you read obituaries? Do you like them? No. No? I mean, I don't dislike them. I just don't read them. Okay, so that's not true. 
if someone notable dies and it's in the news. Oh, so you read a big like yeah, Colin Powell. But I'm not looking at like, you know, just looking through it to be like you know, some people just either some people do to find apartments. Some people do. <laughs> they don't it, do that not anymore. anymore. But that was the way, right? <laughs> some people do it because I think they're sort of a morbid. They want to make sure that they're better than the people who are dying. Oh, is that or, what they like? I, d- different things like that. Right. Uh, my mother-in-law really likes reading obituaries. So I, I uh, Meatloaf died this week. Yes. Um, I, I read his obituary. I, had, I, I, I don't know if it's, I guess it's shocking. Meatloaf said he changed his name. This is in the New York Times. Sorry to mention the New York Times on the podcast, but here it is. Um, Meatloaf said he changed his first name to Michael from Marvin as an adult because of childhood taunts about his weight and the emotional impact of a Levi's jeans commercial with the slogan, Poor fat Marvin can't wear Levi's. Oh, so first of all, can you imagine that ad today? No, I know that's what right? I thought. I was like, poor fat Marvin can't right. wear Levi's. That's so like now, the, literally, you see ads that are sort of body positive with people of different body shapes, and they're trying to say like, you know, we're we're here to sell everyone stuff. Right. Right. At the end of the day, Levi's don't give a shit about anything other than the amount of stuff they can sell and the profit margin on it. But the way that they now try to sell it is. We love everyone. We care about everyone. We're here for everyone, as opposed to that, which is like, if you want to be cool and svelte and thought of well, then you wear Levi's because your antithesis is poor fat Marvin. I just wonder, I, I, was there just millions of ads like that, like just just making people feel terrible about themselves back in the? I guess so. I maybe, guess. May, maybe so. So maybe society has evolved in a positive way. My my meatloaf story is this, which is so I was never a huge meatloaf fan. You know, I've seen Rocky Horror Picture Show, but it wasn't like a thing for me. Like this for some people. <laughs> um, but you know, Harper's from Austin, and Harper, uh, your wife, my wife, and um, meatloaf. I guess is a Northeast phenomenon, right? He, he's, oh, is that right? Apparently so. Hundred and, million records. I think that's bigger than a Northeast. Yeah, phenomenon, but, but I but guess he was really popular, sort right, of okay. in that area. He had a presence here, right? And I remember one time she was trying to talk about him, but she referred to him as Meatball. Oh, that's and funny. I, yeah. And I remember thinking, Meatball, that's absurd. How could you possibly get the name wrong? Call him Meatball. It's Meatloaf. And then I'm thinking, like, here I am thinking, like, so used to him calling himself Meatloaf that when Harper confused him, called him Meatball, like she was the silly one. You should tell Harper, by the way, that um, Meatloaf is from Texas. He is? Born in Dallas, Texas. Did he stay there? No. No. Okay. Um, Look, maybe she just didn't grow up a Meatloaf fan, and and to her credit, that's probably to her credit, by the way. But, 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 yeah, I remember thinking, like, wow, you can get so used to something that is just as absurd that when someone then makes, you know, when she called the meatball, I remember thinking, like, that's crazy. How could you possibly call it that? You know. So meatloaf is our punctuation point for this week's episode. But Bradley, just uh, just give people the 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 heads up on the on the metaverse thing again. That's sure. Be so this week. Um, we are almost done with our thoughts on how to regulate the metaverse. I'm gonna. Re- I've been putting them to a memo. I'm gonna release it publicly uh, next week, which will be this week for those of you listening to this podcast. Um, and I think that there are so many different interesting ideas in there from speech to consumer protection to taxation to national security and everything else that you know one or multiple podcasts going forward will be devoted to how should the metaverse be regulated and i think it's worth saying too that we'd like to hear from listeners about what kinds of things you i mean in general what you'd like to hear on the podcast but also specifically on the metaverse project um what the what aspects of it interest you the most and 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 that you want to you want to hear more about. yeah so please fire all that media uh and again uh if, if you can please rate and review us it just helps us uh reach more people so all right hugo thank you thanks i'll uh, see you later see you next week